A man was at the golf course and he was addressing the ball when an announcement came over the loudspeaker. Will the gentleman on hole number one please not hit from the lady's tee box? Man backs away, a little distracted. He approaches his ball again. As he does, the same announcement comes over the loudspeaker. Will the gentleman on hole number one please not hit from the lady's tee box? Man's getting kind of irritated now, and after backing away from his shot, he approaches his ball one more time. This time, the announcement came, we really need the gentleman on hole number one to move off the lady's tee box, to which the man turns around and yells, and I really need the announcer to shut up and let me play my second shot. <laughs> if you're a golfer, you get that one. Or if you, if you know some golfers, you get that one. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wouldn't it be good occasionally? Uh, uh, the office where I work, we do a golf tournament once a year. We just finished that back in October. And one of the things we do to raise money, it's interesting, what a way to raise money, but is uh, we sell mulligans. Walter, what's a mulligan? A do-over. A do-over. Isn't it it's incredible? For 10 bucks, I'll sell you a do-over on the golf course, at Lincoln Park Golf Course. Uh, couple weeks ago. Wouldn't it be great if it were that easy? Wouldn't it be great if, if someone approached you and said, you know, I hurt your feelings. And I, could, could I have a do-over? People don't say that. In fact, um, I was thinking about that this morning. There are people in our lives who just, they've stepped on our toes. They've hurt us in some way or another. And, and so much of the time, probably, if they would approach you and say, uh, could we do this again? You might even be okay with that. The problem is, people don't say that to you. They don't approach you in that way. The problem is, uh, even though we need a do-over, we haven't really asked for one. Um, so... The question for the morning is, have you ever just really wanted a do-over? A, a mulligan, like in golf. Well, this experience is kind of trivial by comparison. Uh, the ancient na nation of Israel was given a huge do-over by God. We're going to study that today. Uh, it's very, very important for us. In, in our day, in fact, God had... Uh, allowed them to suffer exile for their sins in the later centuries before Christ came. And, but then God reversed that exile and he restored the Israelites to their land. And he granted the promise of a new covenant that we're going to study today. There would be a new people of God in a day to come. And Jeremiah is going to talk about that. Let me give you just a little bit of background on him. His ministry may have begun as early as about 627 B.C., somewhere in the 7th century B.C. Many scholars believed, if you've, read, if you've read about like me and been fascinated by young King Josiah. Anybody remember how old he was when he became king over Judah? I'm hearing 7 and 12. In my head it was 8, so we're somewhere in that, but it's young. Very young. Many people believe that the, the success that Josiah had, and he had lots of it, as, as a good and godly king, many people believe it was because Jeremiah was coaching him, uh, kind of 
in the background. I, I love that thought. Um, um, Jeremiah lived to see the death of Josiah and the collapse of Josiah's reforms, sadly. Jeremiah's ministry ended sometime after the Babylonian-appointed governor of Judah, a guy by the name of Gedaliah, was assassinated in about 585 B.C. He was forced, because of that, to flee to Egypt, where at least some traditions say he died there. Uh, the book of Jeremiah is kind of complicated. Uh, most of uh, Jeremiah's oracles are judgments against the southern kingdom of Judah, of which he was a part, and where he lived most of his life. Uh, most of those oracles lament the apostasy of the people. But even though he's called the... Anybody know his... his uh, wouldn't you love to be called, uh, called this? What, what was his uh, moniker? What was his nickname? Weeping the Weeping Prophet. Wouldn't, you, wouldn't that be great for a TV evangelist today to be known as the crying preacher? That's kind of him. He writes the book of Lamentations. So even though there was sadness in so much he had to say, he writes in the middle of his writings, right in the middle of uh, this book that bears his name, he writes, uh, his writing becomes very hopeful. And sometimes this is known as the book of consolation. It comes um, starting about chapter 30 and goes through chapter 33. And we're going to be right in the middle of that today. The book of consolation. It really takes a hopeful turn at what hope it is. The idea that God has promised to make his exiles his people once again, to make a new covenant with them, to return them to their land, to establish once and for all time the Davidic dynasty as originally promised. The main part of this that they latched onto and they should is God's promise that you will be my people and I will be your God once again. That's kind of the background of it. And that's where we're going to start today. And we're going to talk about this, these jam-packed verses of consolation and hope. Steve Blair, I'm going to prevail on you if I can to start with verse 27, chapter 31. We'll start with verse 27 and go down to 30 is where we're going to start. Can we do that? Really good little uh, play on words that we're going to deal with here. But the, the verse actually in some translations, Steve, what are you reading from today? The 89, there are different NIVs. My, the, the Bible I read from begins with a word, behold. Does yours? Uh, it's kind of an interesting word. The word behold here, uh, the, behold, the days are coming. Steve just started with the days are coming. This is the NIV begins. Behold, that word um, usually says, when I see that in the Bible, so this is a little, little clue for you as you study the Bible. When I see the word behold, what it's saying to me is, okay, pay special attention. Pay special attention. Jesus used the word, used the word behold some. 
uh, if, if I were to say to you, if we were walking down the street and there was a big pothole in the street that you're getting to step in, get ready to step into, and I said, behold, a pothole, what would you do? You'd say, oh, thanks, right? All right. If we were downtown Oklahoma City and a city bus, you're getting ready to step off the curb and there was a city bus coming and I said, behold, a bus. You would not step off that curb, I hope, and therefore be splattered. Okay, so uh, behold says, pay attention. Now, what am I supposed to pay attention to? So he follows that up with a phrase that's pretty popular. Um, one count that I made 15 times in the book of Jeremiah, the days are coming. Uh, it may even be more than that, but at least 15 that I counted. The days are coming, okay? Now, sometimes, and let me fill in your blank here so you'll get it, and then we'll, we'll kind of apply it. Sometimes, the days are coming can portend doom, something bad. Sometimes, they can pretend blessing. Here it's blessing. Let's, let's look at at least one place where uh, the days are coming pretends doom. Look at 31.15. So same chapter, verse 15. Steve, can I get you to go back and read verse 15? prophetic language that Matthew actually picks up on in Matthew 2. Uh, one of the things I love about Matthew is he's writing to a Jewish audience, and so when there's something that happens in Jesus' life that's the result or the fulfillment of a prediction of the prophecy, he'll kind of identify it for us. Um, so in Matthew 2, um, it's telling the story of uh, a horrible episode in Jewish life. Wicked King Herod, um, um, paranoid for his own kingship, hears the Messiah has been born. And what does he do? You remember? He had thousands of babies murdered. So here's what, here's what Matthew uh, kind of connects the dots for us, he says. Then Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, verse 16, chapter 2. He became very enraged, and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under. So he, he was kind of hedging a bet. He figured, okay, this, this kid's probably a toddler by now, so I'm going to have all the little boys killed according to the time which he had determined for the Magi. Here's what Matthew says. This is interesting. Right here is embedded uh, 30, uh, Jeremiah 31, 15. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. That verse that Steve read for us just a minute ago. So sometimes this thought, the day is coming, will say to you, boy, you, don't want, you want to miss that. And there are other times when it will portend blessing, which is actually what's going on in this part of uh, 31. Uh, it's a prediction of blessing. So, so as you read the end part of verse, 30, of verse 27, um, here in chapter 31, what is being promised? 
to what? Certainly the new covenant, but in particular, he's dealing with what particular issue here? In 3127. It, it's kind of funny. It's, it's kind of cryptic language. He says here, <clears throat> did you catch this? Um, I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. Now, look over with me. Turn over one page to your right and go to 3310. 3310. Here's kind of some cryptic language, but this helps us understand it. Thus says the Lord, yet again there will be heard in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man and without beast. That is in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness. So it's the idea is that this, I'm going to use a word that I'm not even sure is a word, okay? This depopulated region. Why is it depopulated? Because they all got shipped off to Babylon. This depopulated, God's going to sow people back here. And he's going to even sow animals back here. It will be repopulated, is what he's saying. What a wonderful promise for them as uh, they're hanging out in Babylon wondering if, the, if better days will ever come again. Uh, Jeremiah's really interesting about this. God, at one point, tells him to go, uh, to go buy a field. He kind of encourages people to, to, uh, to invest in property even before they go off to Babylon, because he says, God's going to bring you back here. So that which will be depopulated will be repopulated. It's kind of the idea here. Uh, the repopulation of the area. So, and then in verse 28, it uses some language here that we've got to kind of, kind of deal with, I think, importantly. If, if you'll go to verse uh, 28, um, he uses some language here. Um, as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I'll watch over them to build and to plant. Really important words. Go with me to the first chapter of Jeremiah. Okay? The first chapter of Jeremiah. This is the story of the call of Jeremiah. He was like lots of preachers, like lots of prophets, like Moses himself. He was kind of reluctant to be used by God. Let me read just a little bit of that. I'm gonna, if you're in Jeremiah 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Do you know that's true of you, by the way? All kinds of implications of that. And before you were born, I consecrated you, and I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. In other words, I had a job for you to do before you were born. Then I said, alas, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak because I'm a youth. But the Lord said to me, don't say I'm a youth because everywhere I send you, you shall go and all that I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them for I'm with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth and the Lord said to me, behold, I have, there's that behold word again. Behold, I put my words in your mouth. Now look at the next couple of verses because this is what parallels what we're looking at. See, I've appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down. Remember reading that just a minute ago? To destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Um, so uh, there's kind of this idea here that, um, uh, that um, there is a purpose to which Jeremiah has been called. 
and uh, God has a purpose in all the things that are about to take place. Um, and at least a couple that we can pick up here. One of his purposes in Jeremiah's life and in what's getting ready to happen is he's going to pronounce judgment on those who have walked away from God. But secondly, he's also going to, going to predict restoration. Don't you know he loves it when he finally gets over to chapter 31 and 30 and he can begin to predict and pronounce hope because there's enough destruction around him. There's enough judgment. And he says, but, but there's a day of hope coming as well. It will be a day of rest, rest, restoration. And so what he does, he quotes something that you would hear on the street in verse 29. This is a proverb, not, a, not Solomon's Proverbs, okay? You won't find it in uh, 1 through 31 of the book of Proverbs. But yeah, um, he's going he's gonna to quote a local proverb, a local kind of, this is what people are kind of living by. Uh, what are some of those that you and I live with in Oklahoma? Little little proverbs that people live by. There you go. If you don't like the weather, wait 15 minutes, it'll change. That's very true in Oklahoma. Okay. Um, um, early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. I believe that was poor Richard's almanac, Ben Franklin, I think. Anybody got another one? The early bird gets the worm. Yeah, okay, there we are. I don't know who came up with that one, but that, that's also kind of a proverb that people kind of live by. Anybody got another one? Penny saved is a penny earned. The handwriting on the wall is actually Old Testament, yeah. But isn't it funny how some of these pethy sayings we get from Scripture? This one is very interesting, and uh, you're probably not going to like it. What's the saying in verse 29? <clears throat> The fathers have eaten what? Sour, Sour grapes. Had some at my house a couple weeks ago. Where did you get those things? <laughs> I'm glad you didn't put them in the chicken salad. You know? <laughs> Sour grapes. You know, they, and what do they do? Literally these, Ron, am I right? They set our teeth on edge. That's kind of the idea. The, but the issue is here, they're saying, Dad ate sour grapes, and my teeth are set on edge. The question is, for the exiles in Babylon, they're asking the question, why me? And they're blaming God for punishing the wrong people. Ever done that? I'm sure you haven't. I have, but you haven't. God, why are you picking on me? He did it. Literally, so they're living by this adage, the fathers have eaten sour grapes. Literally, can you imagine? They're sitting around uh, playing dominoes in Babylon. Okay? Think they had dominoes then? They played train. What's that, Mexican train? They probably played. So they're playing dominoes. He said, you know why we're here? Because our daddies ate sour grapes. Our teeth are set on edge because they ate sour grapes. Isn't that interesting? Why me? The precedent is in Exodus 34, 7. You can look there when you get time. It's the idea that, God, that literally there's a prediction that, boy, the sins that you guys commit now are going to be revisited to the third generation, it says. Now, there are 
intergenerational consequences, the things that you and I do. Am I right? You know, there are, there are things that if you and I set the pattern, our kids may have to pay the price for that. Um, uh, setting a pattern. Uh, it, we don't have to look too hard to look in family systems and see intergenerational sin that revisits and revisits and revisits. What I love, I talked to a young man just the other day who said, in my generation, it stops. He's making some great decisions. And he says, it's because I wasn't handed a really good pattern, but it's going to be better for those who follow after me. I, I love the courage that it takes to admit that. Uh, that being said, uh, it's this idea that um, I can excuse what I do that's not good and godly, you know, dad set the pattern. Mom set the pattern. They ate the sour grapes. My teeth? Mm. Can I tell you something? Here's what the Bible says in other places. And it's going to say it here in spades. The Bible is going to say, all we like sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, and it's like Isaiah catches himself, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That's Isaiah 53. There, there's several places where, where the Bible will say, there is none good, not even one. So don't claim innocence here. Is that harsh? I'm, I'm not meaning to be harsh, I'm just meaning to be honest. We FaceTimed for a minute with our kids in Michigan yesterday. And I realized as much as I love those little guys, even the 10-month-old is starting to do things that I'm thinking, uh, that's, that must be Christie's family coming out there. <laughs> or at least the rushings, it ain't me, you know. We've all chosen sin, haven't we? And we've got to deal with that. But there's good news here. Look at verse 30. Somebody read verse 30 to us again. Isn't that interesting? Hey, you saying this, and Jeremiah said, you can't really say that anymore. Hebrew thought include this idea of corporateness. Everything was about the uh, the nation and so even uh, the what they're dealing with in exile in Babylon they will say is a corporate responsibility fathers mothers what Jeremiah says he turns that idea on its head and says you know what you eat sour grapes it's going to be your teeth that are affected instead of uh, this idea of uh, corporate responsibility. Now the idea is personal responsibility, individual responsibility, not corporate responsibility. All the scholars were kind of teaching this idea of corporate responsibility 
to the point that personal responsibility seems kind of non-existent in Jeremiah's day. And I'll ask the question again. Uh, Jeremiah's kind of implying it. Is anyone completely innocent? No. No. Talked to a guy this week who got a ticket for five over. He's ticked about that. Okay. I'm a five-over kind of guy, all right? But I can't claim innocence. Officer, I was only going (laughs) five-over. Gotcha. Are any of us innocent? But there's this new proverb that replaces the old one, and there's a new promise that's going to come along. He's going to use... The phrase again, beginning in verse 31, the days are coming. What did we say that meant? It's either going to pretend doom or blessing. In this case, it's pretending blessing. Somebody read verse 31 down to 34. Sally, you do that for us. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers, I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, in their minds, and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor, or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is not pretending to him. It's beautiful, isn't it? There's probably no more beautiful language in the Old Testament in some ways. Let's kind of unpack it a little bit again. The days are coming is uh, kind of begins this again. And what I want you to, to notice here is what I believe Jeremiah is dealing with is not just there's, some, there's a different day coming. He's dealing with the last days. Now go with me just one, one page to the left. At the beginning of this... Um, uh, at, at the beginning of this um, uh, book of consolation here, okay, um, he begins to deal with here um, this a little bit. I'm going to read, I'm going to go to chapter 30. I'm going to read several verses, rapid fire, verse 7 and verse 8 and verse 24. Listen to it. Alas, for that day is great. There's none like it. It is the time of Jacob's disgrace, but he will be saved from it. Look at verse 8, next verse. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck, and I will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. Verse 24. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he is performed, until he's accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. There's a day coming in the latter days, in the end times, in the end days, where all of this is going to be set right. It's interesting. Jesus uses, uh, by the way, the word that goes in, the words that go in kind of in, in uh, quotes here in your blanks, 
new covenant. This is the first time, okay, this is the only place in the Old Testament the phrase new covenant is used. Could that make this passage kind of important? I think so. That phrase is picked up then by Jesus in Luke 22 when he serves communion for the first time. And he says, here, this is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink of it. Sounds like he got it and was pretty interested in it. Uh, some writers have said, uh, and by the way, this entire, so Jesus picks it up in Luke twenty-two twenty, 20, uh, in words in red, he's quoting uh, from this idea of the new covenant from, from Jeremiah 31. Uh, in, in Hebrews 8, beginning with verse 8, they're going to, the Hebrews writer is going to wholesale quote verse uh, from verse eight to verse twelve. This whole section of scripture, um, um, uh, kind of in, in the in the uh, in the New Testament. So um, uh, it sounds like this passage, beginning here with verse thirty-one, is really really critical. Uh, by the way, if you're reading, if you've turned over to Hebrews 8 there, you'll notice this section is all in caps. That's an indication that they quoted from the Old Testament, and they're quoting from this chapter. You'll notice it's just nearly identical to what we're reading here in, verse, in chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. Does it sound like this passage is important? Some scholars will say, They've called this the most, that 3131, this is interesting, this is a huge claim, is the most important verse in the Old Testament. Some scholars. I would hate to have to make that determination. What's the most important thing for us to learn from the Old Testament? Isn't it interesting that 3131, let me read it for you again from, from the New American Standard. It's that important. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant within the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. There's a new day coming. Okay, verse 32. You and I know, reading history, that the people of God repeatedly broke the old covenant. It's referenced here in verse 32. God rescued them. Read about that in the Exodus. And they immediately broke the covenant. In uh, the second chapter of Hosea, great book uh, to read, interesting book to read. God tells him in chapter one, I want you to go marry, I'm going to use King James English here, you ready? I want you to marry Anne Harlot. Okay? I want you to marry a sketchy lady. And I want you to have children by her, but you're going to know this, that she's not going to be faithful to you. And so Hosea's life becomes an illustration of the unfaithfulness of the people of God. Here he says, I've been a husband to you. There's kind of that thought. They repeatedly broke the covenant uh, to kind of show this. Um, he's, he's kind of dealing with it again here. Now, look at verse 33. It's really important. I want you to kind of help me answer these questions that I put on your, on your outline for today. Verse 33. This, okay, here's the questions. Okay. Where's the covenant written and by whom? 
this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Where is it written? On their hearts. Uh, by the way, all, through this whole section, um, uh, Jeremiah's doing a, not this but that, not this but that, not this but that, and you see it here. It's not written on... Uh, the, the word that I need you to know will not be written in stone. You've already broken that. It's not going to be written in your heart. Who writes it? Not God, not Moses gonna, you know, on a stone tablet. Who writes it? The Lord himself. I'm going to submit to you that the idea here is that the Holy Spirit writes this on your heart. It's kind of implying here the old law was ineffective anyway. The new one will be with you all the time. The Holy Spirit writing his, his law on your heart, writing what's important to God on your heart, is going to say to you, Isaiah says this in one place, he's going to say to you, turn here, don't turn there. What a beautiful thought. Moment by moment, decision by decision, I can have the leadership of God, I can have the guidance of God, through his Holy Spirit's work inside me. That's kind of the thought here. The Holy Spirit has written his law in your heart. You know it's true. There are times when I don't have to actually say, should I go there? The Spirit inside you has already told you that. No, probably not. Or, in a positive sense, there are things that God wants you to do and and. He's telling you that. You don't need to kind of do a legal pad and say, should I do this? Or maybe here's the pros and here's the cons. Because the Holy Spirit's saying, I need you to do this. I want you to do this. Go, go now, do it. It's because his law is written on your heart, not on a tablet somewhere. Verse 34 predicts what, what some would call a perfect state of affairs between God and his people. And I want you to make your way, if you will, with me to the book of Hebrews because we're going to apply it here. Let me read uh, verse 34 one more time. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I remember no more. No one's going to need a human mediator. God says, I'll be your mediator. Now, if we have trouble connecting this, I think Hebrews 4, I really the whole book of Hebrews helps me connect the dots. But right here in Hebrews 4, it's this idea of, okay, if i got to go through someone else to get to God. I need a mediator, but I need a really, really good one between me and God because God is so good and I'm so not. And so the Hebrews writer gives us detail of that. Would somebody read, if you're at Hebrews 4, read verse 15 and 16. No more important passage in this little book. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Somebody got it? Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
If you're looking for a mediator, you got one. If you're looking for someone to plead your case before the Father, you've got one. This is all fulfilled. We'll, we'll look a little more at this next week in chapter 12, but certainly in chapter 8. It's all fulfilled in Jesus, whom the Bible says here that Brad just read about. The Bible says he was, he was tempted, tested in every way like you, you and I are, and yet without sin. The perfect mediator, the perfect high priest for my sin. So, this idea here, this go-between is per a perfect connection fulfilled in him between God and me, between me and other people. He's broken down that barrier. So here's my question as we leave. Are you living a new covenant life? And I've had to answer that question in, in my heart this week. Am I living a new covenant life? And so I begin to think about what would that look like? Well, it means, according to what Brad just read, that I can access God anytime. Are you? Am I? He's available 24-7, 365. Am I doing that? Rhonda called uh, somebody um, yesterday about, about um, a statement that she had. of going to call in a bank, and you'll have to call back on Monday. That's called back on Monday. No, no negative reflection of, reflection of the bank, but how wonderful that you never have to worry whether God is in. Whether this is within business hours. 24-7, 365, you can access God. Are you? Are you living in Him? Another thought. Meaning, am I living with Him? Am I feeling His constant fellowship and presence? Jesus died so that you could have that, by the way. He sent his Holy Spirit to live with you. Now, part of living the new covenant is, am I living with him? Am I saying to him on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, Lord, I'm really not sure. Should I go left or right here? And I'm not talking about the streets of Oklahoma City. I'm talking about, should I do this or do that? And asking the Holy Spirit, because you're living with him, asking the Lord, Lord, teach me, guide me, direct me. I will follow you. New covenant life. That's kind of what that's about. Are you living an eternal quality of life now? I think a lot of us think, okay, I've accepted the Lord Jesus. I know he lives within me and I'm ready for heaven. And until then, uh, well, you know, whatever. Am I living an eternal quality of God with God now? Because one of these days, I'm going to live with him forever. How would it be? Here's, here's kind of another thought to frame here. New covenant life means, and, and I encounter this occasionally, coming to the end of my life with really no regrets. Wouldn't it be wonderful to, to get to the end of today and to look back at today and say, there's really no regrets about today. And if the Lord says, well, what about this? And I deal with it then. I go to my mediator then. Lord, I am sorry about that. Forgive me. Make tomorrow a better day. You know why? Because unlike your golf buddy, the Lord offers you a do-over. A new covenant. If you couldn't live up to the old one, 
neither could they. And he gives us a brand new one. It says, hey, let's start this thing over. Are you living in that new covenant moment by moment, day by day? If not, that's where he wants you to be. And he's given you the power and the spirit and his word to guide you through. Okay, Hebrews 8, uh, sorry, Hebrews 12 next week. See you there, okay? <laughs>